We'll begin our reading this morning in verse 8. Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Let's bow again in prayer. Our Father, we pause these moments to again reflect upon the truth of our need of you and the truth of your word. And we ask, Father, that as we proclaim that which is given to us in your word this morning, that our hearts and minds would be attentive to the revealed Christ. May we see the truth of who you are as you have revealed yourself to be. And Lord, as well, may we as your people humble ourselves in submission to the instruction that is before us. We ask, Lord, that as you might guard our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we would be focused on the truth that is before us this morning in your word. And we ask, Father, that the very words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last June, we began our study of this epistle of Paul to the Philippians, at which time I pointed out Paul's thesis statement for the letter. And this is always important, and we're coming to the nearing the end of the letter at this point in time. Chapter 4 is the last chapter. This is the next to the last division within the epistle. And we find that there is a thesis statement made within the epistles, and it's very important that we recognize that as we are studying through Scripture, that we are aware of the truth that is before us. And Paul exhorted the Philippian believers in chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, he says that they are to approve things that are excellent, which is to say, test and examine things that are superior. As we've discovered throughout the study of this epistle thus far, there are 10 divisions within this epistle which focus on those things which are superior. All that is superior finds its foundation and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is superior to all things and all others. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, just to give you a breakdown again of how we see this unfold throughout the entirety of the epistle, in chapter 1, verse 12 through 18, we see the excellency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 30, the excellency of salvation in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, the excellency of the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, 14 through 18, the excellency of following Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, 19 through 30, the excellency of fellowship through Jesus Christ. 
in chapter 3, 1 through 16, the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, 17 through 21, the excellency of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, the excellency of the peace of God through Jesus Christ. And in chapter 4, 8 through 14, which is where we are this morning, the excellency of contentment in Jesus Christ. And chapter 4, verses 15 through 23, the excellency of God's provision in Jesus Christ. Over the past several weeks, we have been examining the eighth division regarding the excellency of the peace of God through Jesus Christ in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul wrote of this peace in verse 7 when he said, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Within our study of this passage, we have considered that which Paul lists as God's prescription for realizing or experiencing this peace, as Paul further clarifies in verse 9, when Paul says, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So we've seen over the past several weeks that, number one, God's peace is experienced as we remain steadfast. Because, again, this is how Paul is revealing or, or showing us how God's peace is realized. Let me, let me pause for a moment and remind you that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has reconciled you to himself through the cross of Christ, which means the word reconciliation or reconcile is to remove the hostility. So all the hostility that existed between us and God has been removed through the cross of Christ. So we peace with God. It's not we, we are at peace with God, period, and forever will be because of Christ, who is our righteousness. However, as I've mentioned over the past several weeks many times, we do not always, all in the same manner and same way, experience or realize that peace to the same degree. And so it's there, we have peace with God, but the peace is given that we might live and enjoy and experience that peace with Him, even if there's turmoil all about us. And so God's peace is experienced, it is realized as we remain steadfast in verse 1 we've seen. Two, God's peace is experienced as we maintain the unity of the Spirit, as Paul teaches in verses 2 through 3. Then third, God's peace is experienced when we express godly contentment and praise in verses 4 and 5. And then fourth, God's peace is experienced when we rely on the Lord with thankful hearts. Verse 6. The term, be careful, that is used in this passage when Paul says that we are to be anxious or be careful for nothing, is translated from one Greek verb which means anxious or care for. And the instruction in this verse by the term, be careful, is exhorting the reader really to not worry. That is the emphasis, is do not worry. It is important that we not conflate, as I mentioned last week, trouble or turmoil with worry. In other words, one may experience great turmoil or trouble and yet remain at peace. And when we think of peace, we think of absence of war, absence of conflict, absence of trouble. Really, that is true, but if we're not careful, we will have a skewed perspective of this definition of the word peace in this regard. We think, oh, well, we're at peace, meaning that God has blessed us in such a way that we're not suffering at this time, we're not experiencing trouble at this time. Wait a minute. We will never be at peace with this world, ultimately. Not if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. There's constant conflict. It doesn't mean that we're obnoxious and obstinate. It means that we stand in truth, and guess what the world hates? They hate truth. 
And so the reality is that you will have conflict with the world. But the lack of hostility and the lack of turmoil and the lack of trouble is still a reality in that we have no trouble with God. There is no turmoil with God. We are at peace with him. So despite the issues or problems or circumstances that we all face, even for the sake of the gospel, we must be aware that the peace that we have with God and from God is one that has removed all the trouble, all the hostility, all the enmity that was present between us and God. It is now gone. It has been removed. And so there is no trouble and and issues concerning us and our relationship with God. We are in a perfect relationship with Him. Now again, I said to you a moment ago, there are times that we do not realize this peace of God to the same degree as other times. But you, you just said, you may claim that, we're at perfect in this perfect relationship with God. Oh, we are. We're in a perfect relationship with Him, but we sometimes hinder the fellowship that we have with Him due to our getting in the way, as I've mentioned, or our focus on temporal things rather than that which is eternal. So peace is not limited to the absence of trouble, but rather can actually be defined as trusting in God and His work as we are at peace with Him despite turmoil and trouble that we experience elsewhere. In Matthew's gospel record, Jesus spoke of such trust and rest in God's providence and purpose. Matthew 6, 30-33, Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not, not much more clothe you? And then he says again, O ye of little faith. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. From this passage in Matthew's gospel, we are reminded of this truth. Worry can only reside in the absence of faith. Jesus is telling his disciples here, take no thought for tomorrow. He's not saying don't prepare or don't be prepared in in that you just go through life uh, uh, haphazardly or carelessly in the sense of just whatever we will be. That's not what he is saying. He is saying, do not concern yourself and do not worry and do not be distracted from righteousness and following after righteousness for lack of what you may think are needs in this present world. So he said, take no thought for these things. And then he said, O ye of little faith. So it was their absence or lack of Faith being demonstrated through the faith. Faith is not claiming something. Faith is believing what God has said. Believing God and believing his word. And so here we are being told that they lacked faith in this moment because they were taking care, concern or worry, possessed worry over that which may or may not be or over that which they needed or felt like they needed or thought they needed. When, when the Lord says to them, Jesus says that our Father provides for us. And again, I want to emphasize this truth to you this morning, that we must be aware that the reason we do not need to worry is because we have such a heavenly Father. And if we are focused and reflecting on the truth of who He is and His provision, and I don't mean just physical things. Look, throughout history of the church, there have been those who have been martyred for the faith. There are those who are persecuted for the faith. That is not a lack of faith, nor... Is it a lack of God's provision? It is understanding that God has ultimately provided for us in the person of Jesus Christ all that is spiritually necessary for us to have a relationship with Him and have fellowship with Him continually. 
And so, again, I remind you that we are all going to die. That's just the reality of life. You have life, and then there is death, and none of us shall escape that. So having faith is not going to prevent you from a physical death. Having faith is not going to prevent you from a physical sickness. But I'll tell you what faith does. It believes God, and it rests and trusts in Him. And when we are resting and trusting in Him and His providential care, His providential purpose, then we can have peace and be free from the worry that otherwise would consume us. And we are all prone to that. We are all susceptible to that without question. So last week we saw the answer to the question, how can we as believers safeguard against allowing worry to creep into our own lives or or, or consume us? Look at verse 6. Be careful. Again, be anxious. And this is not talking about, I want to clarify again, the word anxious is not speaking of anxiety as in some physical condition or something that someone goes through. It's talking about focused on worry and consumed with worry, some of that anxiety that comes from that and anxiousness. He says, be careful for nothing. Now notice, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And we saw last week that the answer for worry possessing us or consuming us is number one, we pray over all things, as the scripture says, but in everything by prayer. We pray for others. That's what supplication is associated with and related to. Throughout the scriptures, you'll find consistently that when supplication is mentioned, it is prayer, but it's specifically in reference often to, the pray, to us praying for others, not even just praying for ourselves. Third, we are to demonstrate a spirit of thankfulness, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And then fourth, we trust and rely upon the Lord. Let your requests be made known unto God. We are resting and trusting in his providence. Then verse 7 follows, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So this morning we begin to continue in our study of this ninth of the ten divisions within this epistle. Within this portion of the letter, as Paul begins to conclude his thoughts, his exhortation and instruction to the Philippians, we find Paul addressed a matter of the greatest importance. Chapter 4, 8 through 14 again, and we'll really only deal with verse 8 this morning. And I know all of you said, Whew. right? Because that's just the review from last week. So you're like, okay, that's good. So just one verse. That's because we don't have time to get into the rest of it. <laughs> the chapter 8, verse, or 4, verses 8 through 14, we see again the excellency or superiority of contentment in Jesus Christ. As I've mentioned to you many times throughout this study, we are to recognize that which is superior, but the only way we can do that is if we recognize something to be inferior to that which is superior to that superior thing. When it comes to the the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul clearly recognized that Jesus and knowing him is superior to all other things. So we recognize the superiority of Christ, which therefore helps us to see the inferiority of everything else. And once we see that this is inferior, we further uh, look to and trust and rest in the superiority of Jesus Christ in all things. Philippians 3, 4 through 10, we read, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, Paul wrote, and we've dealt with this several weeks back, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And then here we find Paul's resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, 
and I count all things but loss for the excellency, there's the word again, for that superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now again, let me point out some truths briefly so you have an understanding of what Paul has just said. In chapter 3, Paul is now reflecting upon his own life, and he's saying all things that were gained to me, those I counted lost. But he explains to us what he means by that. He gives us this impressive resume in which he states, if anyone, we read it a moment ago, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, it was me. Of all people that could say, oh, I boast in my flesh, I am the man, Paul says. I am the one who could boast in my flesh. And then he gives us his resume, right? He, he was circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, touching the law, blameless. He says, I, I lived by the law. I followed after the law. No one could point at me and say, oh, well, you didn't act right. Now, Paul's blameless, obviously. He's saying from an outward perspective and standard that he was the one they would look to and say, well, if, if there's really somebody who follows the law and there's really a Pharisee and, a, and uh, uh, someone we can go to, a, a, a scholar, if you will, that's Paul, by all means. Paul's the man. And Paul is saying, so if anyone could boast, it's me. I could boast in what I had accomplished. I could boast in my lineage. I could boast in my heritage. I could boast in my position in life. I was respected. But then he says this, I count all things but loss. All those things I thought were gain. And when he says gain, what he is saying is that these are the very things that he believed that he could offer to God as his righteousness. These are the things that he was saying, okay, look at who I am, look at what I've done, and here I am, God, look how righteous I am. And then he says, oh, but wait a minute, all of that is so inferior to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is superior to all of this. All of this is nothing to use. This is garbage. This is meaningless, Paul says, because it does not contain any righteousness within it because I don't contain any righteousness in my flesh. And so Paul is making this absolute statement about counting all things but loss. And then he explains that further in this text because he says, be found in him. Here it is. This is his explanation. Not having mine own righteousness. That is not some abstract, isolated statement. That is in direct relation to what he just stated. All that I thought I could offer as righteousness, it means nothing. It is refuse. It is garbage. And he says, having not mine own righteousness, which is of the law, keeping the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul says, Christ and knowing him and his righteousness is superior. So this ninth division, as I mentioned earlier, is the next to the last division within this epistle. And it is fitting that Paul addresses the importance of the superiority of the contentment that is experienced in Jesus Christ as he is working to the conclusion of this letter. However, before we move into Paul's declaration regarding the superiority of the contentment experienced in Christ... Paul begins this ninth division in verse 8 with a reminder to commit ourselves to all the things which are superior. Let's read verse 8 with that understanding. Finally, Paul says, I'm coming to the conclusion of this epistle. I'm wrapping up my thoughts. He's not finished yet, but he's coming to the conclusion. And he says, finally, at the end of this epistle, brethren, 
Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. So let's dissect this verse this morning. In verse 8, Paul works through a list of things which are superior and worthy of our attention and meditation. Now, it is through a consistent mental diet of that which is righteous that we are kept in the peace of God, meaning we continue to realize and experience God. This is not a new concept. In Isaiah 26, 3, we read, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Notice what it says. Whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. I hope you're seeing where this is going. Paul states, finally, brethren. Paul is not quite finished with the epistle, but as he is preparing to conclude the letter, he does so by addressing the Philippians with a term of unity and endearment when he says, finally, brethren. Again, anytime I read something like this, whether it be in a greeting or in a closing of a letter, it's important that we not just overlook the importance of this because when Paul uses the word brethren in context, he is talking about a body or a fellow believers in Jesus Christ who have received of the same grace he has received. They've received the same mercy he has received. They've received the same love of God that he has received because they have received Christ as he has received Christ, making them a part of this family. Now remember something. Paul also mentions those of Israel as his brethren of the flesh. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about brethren in Christ and this unity and this peace that is is existent within them because of the Spirit of God. So he addresses them in this, in this fashion. Finally, brethren. But then notice what he says. Whatsoever things are, now he goes to the list. Number one, true. Whatsoever things are two, honest. Whatsoever things are three, just. Whatsoever things are four, pure. Whatsoever things are five, lovely. And whatsoever things six are of good report. Now in 1 Corinthians 13, Just hold this thought for a moment. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes charity, if you recall. And each of the examples provided by Paul have already been demonstrated within one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 31 through 13, 8, this is what we read. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and verse 31, the last verse of that chapter but covet earnestly the best gifts. Now let me explain what's going on in, at the church of Corinth in his epistle. The church at Corinth, of course, as Paul says in chapter 1 in addressing them, he mentions that they, they lack in no gift, but that God has given them all things that are necessary concerning spiritual gifts. But yet also the Corinthian church, because they were, they were carnal in their thinking in this regard, they were looking to the gifts that they had been given as though this is made them spiritual. They were counting on the demonstration of these spiritual gifts and saying, oh, well, look, this man is spiritual or I'm spiritual because I have this gift. When God has gifted every believer by his spirit in a fashion in which we are to edify one another and the gifts, the gifting of the spirit, not the gift of the spirit in the sense of we've been born again, but after having been born again, receiving of the spirit of God in salvation, we now have been given gifts to, to men have severally been given, and they've been divided up by God unto us, making up the body, that we might edify one another, that we might, we might comfort, that we might fortify, that we might strengthen, that we might encourage one another and instruct and teach 
and exhort and correct one another, rebuke one another, so, and, and, and minister, making up the whole of the body unto the glory of God. And so these gifts that were given to the church, they were looking in, in, at these gifts and going, oh, and the ones that were more outwardly demonstrated or seen, those are the people that got the attention as being super spiritual because their gift is one that is just so obviously demonstrated and manifested. So surely that's a really spiritual person, and that's what's going on. So Paul says, but covet, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent or extraordinary, or could we say superior, way. Then verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1 continues. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, notice carefully what Paul says here, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Number one, charity suffereth long and is kind. Here he gives this description and definition of charity. Number two, charity envieth not. Number three, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Number four, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Number five, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Number six, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And number seven, charity never faileth. But where there be prophecies, they shall fail. Where there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now notice, these verses in 1 Corinthians, I go to 1 Corinthians to help you to see the truth of what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Okay, we are not, we're not digressing from Philippians. I'm helping you to see what is actually being stated by Paul here. These verses in 1 Corinthians are not an instruction manual on how we are to act but they are a declaration of the necessity for us to possess God's love. And where is God's love demonstrated and found? Only in the person of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, these verses describe the very person of Christ, which is God's love personified. So what we see is when Paul says, though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, though I have all of these gifts, he's saying, if I have not charity, now that is possessive in nature. He doesn't say if I don't demonstrate charity. He does not say if I don't act in charity. He doesn't say if I don't show others charity. That's not what he says. He says, and have not. And that is possessive. So Paul is not talking about something we are doing. He's talking about something that we possess. He says, if I, and notice he said in chapter 12, verse 31, seek the best gifts, desire them. But I show unto you a more excellent, a more extraordinary, a more superior way he says. Not a superior thing, a superior way. And then he goes on to say, I can do all this, but if I have not, possess not. And then the description that follows, here's what I'm saying to you. It doesn't say, okay, now you need to start being this way. That's not what's being said here. This is declarative, not imperative. It's not saying do this. It's saying this is what is. This is what real, genuine love looks like. So I believe it would be proper for us to say this. Though I speak, and by the way, the word charity, of course, is that word agape, which is referenced throughout Scripture many times concerning God's love. And so it would be proper for us to say, if I, though I speak with the tongues of men of angels and, and have not God's love, or possess not God's love. But if God's love is in the person of Christ, 
and demonstrated in Christ. Who shall separate us? Romans 8, Paul says, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's love is in Christ. So it would also be proper to say this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not Christ, then it all means nothing. It all is useless. So when we read through 1 Corinthians 13, it's not saying, oh, this is how your love is supposed to look. Oh, to God that our, would to God that our love did look like that, but it doesn't, does it? Our love is selfish, is it not in this flesh? But the love of God in Jesus Christ is selfless, perfect, pure love. And that's what's being described here. This is the love of God that's being described, not your love. And so back to chapter 4 and verse 8 of Philippians. Within the epistle to the Philippians, what Paul is actually saying when he says, think on these things, he's saying whatever is true, whatever is honest, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good report, might I say this to you? I know nothing is true than Jesus Christ. I know nothing that is more honest than Jesus Christ. I know nothing that is more just than our Lord Jesus Christ. I know nothing or no one that is more pure than our Lord Jesus Christ. I know nothing or anyone that is more lovely than our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know nothing or anyone that is of a greater report than Jesus Christ. By the way, the word gospel means what? Good news. Good news of what? Jesus Christ. That's a good report. The reality is that while we are to have a mental diet again of things that are holy, righteous, just, here's what I'm saying to you. The greatest and superior of all things that are just and lovely and pure and honest and good report, the greatest of these is Christ. So what are we to do then? We are to dwell ultimately upon Him, for He is the purest of the pure. And I ask you, So what is there that you could possibly dwell on or meditate upon or think of that is more holy, more just, more pure, more lovely than Jesus? There's nothing else. Are there other things that are pure and lovely in terms of the righteousness of God, redemption of Christ, all this that God has provided us? Absolutely. But again, let us be reminded that we are not to focus, if you will, even as the Corinthians, where they were focusing on the gifts rather than the giver. They were focusing on this outward demonstration, which obviously in some ways set them apart from others, but it is the love of God in Jesus Christ that made them one together in unity. And Paul is saying, this is more excellent. This is superior. So Paul goes on to say, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, the noun virtue means excellence of character. And the statement, if there be any praise, refers to anything worthy of praise. So Paul is saying, if there is anything of excellence or superiority that is worthy of praise, then he says this, think on these things. Has Paul not spent this entire time focusing on all that is superior in and because of Christ? That's what he's led us to. And now he's saying, so if there be anything that is superior, if there's anything that is worthy of praise, then that is what we are to dwell on. Our attention, in other words, is to be undivided. Our every thought is to be captured by the beauty and preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing and no one by whom our Lord Jesus Christ can be measured. Paul has already emphasized this truth within the epistle in chapter 2 within his hymn to Christ or was referred to theologically as the Carmen Christi. In Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11, Paul also demonstrated the worth of Christ in his own humility in that humility of Jesus an expression of his desire to know Jesus as he considered things he once thought as righteousness to be refuse in comparison to knowing Jesus in Philippians 3, 3 through 9 as we mentioned a moment ago. 
So here's what we must understand. The more, we, we, the more that we reflect upon Christ, the more we reflect and meditate upon His humility and His sacrifice to the Father, the more adoration we will have for Him. And the more we will realize the importance and necessity of our submission to Him and His truth. It is when we reflect upon who He is and what He has done in light of who He is and in light of who we are that we will begin to recognize His worth. Additionally, it is only in recognizing the worth of Christ that we will genuinely worship Him because it is then that we acknowledge that He alone is worthy of our adoration, of our submission, of our lives. Worship is that, of course, we are submitted to God, but the word worship is that of service. And the reality is that God alone is worthy of our service. He's alone worthy of our submission. He alone is worthy of our lives. And so as we reflect upon Christ, as we think on these things, it's not merely saying, think of something that you think is pure and then dwell on it. No, because again, if we follow this to its conclusion, we understand there is nothing more pure than Jesus Christ and His love, God's love for us in Him. There's nothing more lovely than our Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us. There's nothing Christ. He is superior to all things and all others. So may we join together then, as Paul is exhorting the church at Philippi, to think on these things of the loveliness and the purity and the goodness and the justness and the honesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is superior to all other things and to all others. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and as we've been able